Do you want a cash-flowing portfolio that lets you live a life of freedom? Sunsets and palm trees on your terms. Your host, Corey Peterson, is a rags-to-riches real estate millionaire who started with no money or credit and quickly grew a multi-million dollar portfolio of cash-flowing apartments. You're only one deal away from creating the cash flow life, and the Multifamily Legacy Podcast will show you how. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Multifamily Legacy Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Peterson. And man, we have got a wonderful guest today. Jason Yusuri is really, I mean, we just got done with this podcast and I'm re-recording the intro right now. And I'm just telling you, I really enjoyed our talk today. We talked about so many things. We talked about mindset. We talked about having little steps, little goals, micro goals to get to your ultimate goal of becoming successful in multifamily space. It's fun when you have a nice story and a journey that I think is very relatable. I think that's what you're going to find, Jason, is he's very relatable in his stories and his concept. It's rooted in sound decision-making, and it's a really neat story of how you can be successful as well in the multifamily space. Multifamily is a team sport, and you're going to hear him talk about that and a lot more. So I'm just going to really tell you that this episode is going to be really enjoyable. You're going to really like it. But before we do that, a word from our sponsors. At Kahuna Investments, we partner with passive investors to create award-winning communities families love to call home. If you want to learn more about our company and our process, go to www.kahunainvestments.com and click the deal room. All right, we're back. So listen, I really also want to just let you guys know about the kahunaboardroom.com. That is where we are getting ready to do our three-day event. It starts in February, February 16th through the 18th. If you have not signed up yet, what are you waiting for? Okay, I'm telling you right now, this three-day event that we do, I teach people how to raise money totally different. I know this because when I go and speak and I tell people how I set up my deals, their jaws drop. And I don't want you to miss out on the juiciness of learning how to raise capital properly to get cheap capital. Where do you fish for that? Where do you find it? What questions do you ask? How do you get more of it? We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about how to get deal flow. We're going to talk about how to be a better operator. So this three-day intensive is really the ticket to your learning and cultivation of multifamily real estate. So if you've not done so, I'm just going to highly encourage you right now that you need to go to the Kahuna Boardroom, kahunaboardroom.com. All right. So again, Jason, he's the founder of Yasuri Holdings with his wife, Peely. They've acquired over $192 million in real estate assets. Can't even say that today. My gosh. He's host of the Multifamily Live podcast and the Seven Figure Multifamily Mastermind. He's done some ultra marathons. He's a really good dude. And I think you're going to really enjoy it. So let's get to it. Hey, Jason, welcome to the show, brother. Yeah. Great to be here. Thank you for having me excited about this episode. Really, when I was first doing some research on you, just understanding about you run ultra marathons. And for anybody that's listening, that's got to be beyond most people's idea. Like an ultra is 100 miles, right? Correct. They really call it anything really over the marathon length of 26.2, but the majority of a mile marker that gets out there is about 100 miles. So they'll call anything that really scales past the marathon, ultra marathon, so 30 miles, anything past that. But yeah, typically the mile marker is that 100 miler. Yeah, those don't get done by thinking about it overnight. Usually takes a little bit of planning, I'm sure, and a whole different schedule of how you get there and arrive to that. And by the way, so I didn't tell you this, but like, 
I may not look like it because I never ran cross country, but I kind of did. In my high school, my high school in Missouri takes state almost every year in cross country. And so I'm telling you from the minute you get into like sixth grade where you actually have sports that you can play in, the only way you get to play any other sport is everybody has to run cross country. Even on our breaks, like we have recess, the kids that are playing sports are just running laps. And there's one guy who is the manager. You have a little booklet and he's giving little hole punches. So at a very young age, that's how they won state every year is they had a feeder program getting kids to start running early and running often. And I will say growing up and watching those kids, my classmates log in miles every morning, a dedication that I don't think you see in very many sports. So anyways, I just want to congratulate you on being able to do that. That takes dedication, planning, and it takes commitment. So it's amazing. I appreciate that. Something you said that's key there, the commitment, right? Running's like most things are like you can go play them, right? You can play football, you can play soccer, you can play basketball. Running's running. And so what you find there is that when you're playing these other sports, there's this point of that you have your enjoyment, right? And there's the enjoyment in running, but there's that mental and physical aspect to it, right? Because easily enough, you could just be running and just decide to stop, right? Then the run's over. Right. But the commitment of it as you continue to grow into these longer phases and you don't know the unknown of where your body can push it, that's really where you can find your outsert of how far you can go. So if you think about it, right, like the 100 miler, I didn't know how to train for that because I had done countless marathons and there's marathon programs, there's all these other programs showing you, like, here's the steps to do it. Like, follow this, like, four, six, eight week program. And lo and behold, like, you'll be ready, do a couple 20 mile races before you do the marathon. Right. Well, with the 100 miler, it's not like two weeks out or, or a month out, I'm going to be running a couple 80 miles just to get myself up there, right? So it was just, what do I do, right? And that's like, it's a good transition. Like, what do we do in our entrepreneur journey? Like, what do we do in life, right? And many times we want that like perfect roadmap. We want to have this thing dialed out where like, if I do all these steps, I'll have this goal right here. I know exactly where to go. And then you get so fearful of starting one because maybe you've got this huge goal that you just can't comprehend because you've never done it. Right. But two, that first step, smacks you in the face because it's completely different from what you thought, right? So you'll sit in the sideline waiting to take action. And so I couldn't figure out really how to train for this. And so I just said, well, I'm just going to get up and run six miles every day. And I'll just run that every day, whether my knee hurts, my ear hurts, I'm sick, it's snowing out, it's raining out, it's whatever. Just do that every morning. Get up every morning and do that. And on that part, that will be my training. Now in there, I did some longer runs and some other things in between, but I did that consistently point because what I found in these longer runs is that so many points, you can just stop, right? And you'll see, especially when you do the 100 mile, or sometimes they'll layer in there a 50 mile, and you'll see a lot of people with the expectation to do the 100 mile, and then they get to that comfort spot of 50 and be like, oh, I guess that's good enough, right? And so they'll stop at that. But most of the journey of life is just setting these stages where if you can accomplish these goals throughout, all of a sudden, you turn around and you're miles down the road from where you were. And so even on the 100 miles, I said, okay, well, I don't know how to run 100 miles. So if I stand here at six in the morning, can't wait to finish 100 miles, my mind is going to try and scare me away yeah. and try and stop me from where I'm going. And so if I just get out there, my first goal was like, let me just get to that first aid station five miles away. I can run that far. I've done that many times, right? Get there. Now I have a little drink and now let me just run to the next one and then run to the next one. And then let me run to the next one. Now I'm 20 miles in. And let me just see if I can maybe at some point I'm just, can I just run to the bridge? Can I just run another thousand steps? Can I just run to 500 feet? Can I just run over that hill right there? And each time 
I'll figure it out. Let me just see if I get there. And if something changes, then I can reassess it, right? And all of a sudden, you look behind you and you're 100 miles down. And it was a series of small little wins that got me there. And usually what we do is we see too much on social media, these big wins where you want that. You think that you have to do something all of a sudden and have this huge result. But if we would just set up small layers of steps throughout, we find the journey, which we're on the entire time, becomes a lot more achievable. And all of a sudden, we're well past where we thought we'd ever be with our goal. Yeah, I totally get that. I equate that to mountain climbing here in Arizona. There's a couple of good, really good climbs that you can do. One's pretty, it's called Camelback Mountain. Have you ever done it, Camelback, in Arizona? No, I haven't. It's like two and a half hour. Well, for you, it's probably two. For me, it's definitely two and a half, right? Pretty good size mountain. But when you look at it first, you're like, dude, but it really is. That's how I got up. It was like, I just want to go another hundred feet. Yeah. And then you yeah. get it. And then when you get it to the top, you're like, dude, that was wow, man. You're just looking back, that was easy, man. You look back at the journey and you feel rewarded. For me, that's why I love the top. There's a view, right? You're like, that's the reward, right? Like all the hard work. So I totally relate it to that story and that commitment. And I think you're right. In business, that is the challenge for most people think that you got to have instant gratification. But investing is not set up that way. Multifamily is definitely not set up that way, I don't think, right? Yeah. So let's no. jump into your multifamily journey here. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've done in the multifamily space? Sure. So we brought our first property in 2017. Before that, grown up, I'd lived in New York City for a while, opened some restaurants and some and bars, opened and sold a brewery. So I had done a number of things on that side of the business. And then Hurricane Sandy happened on the East Coast and just so many homes, right? Well, my dad has a small construction business that was really targeted to flood zone properties. So he does a lot of work in this space and his business. You can imagine before a huge storm, there's only so many people that want to move or lift the home, right? So he would do like 11 or 12 projects a year. Lo and behold, that storm happens and thousand calls a day right away because of just all the devastation. So my brother, who was working for me, my wife now, who was my girlfriend at the time, Peely, we decided to move out and just help dad with the family business. So we did that for a couple of years and that was great, but the family business was never really the direction I wanted to go just because we constantly put ourselves in the service position. And you find that in some of the aspects of real estate, if you take a day off, there's no revenue, right? Because you can't build a team around you, especially in a business that's so detailed as house moving, it's hard to just hire on a second team already because it's so intricate and just dangerous, right? Right. So we kept looking for a way that if there was 25 hours in a day, eight days a week during that time. We were so busy. And all of a sudden, Peely, um, now my wife, we're having our first child. And we just said, we got to find a way to get our time back. We got to figure something out. And the word real estate kept popping up at that term, mean a million different things. So we thought we'd do what was logical. And we went out there. She got a real estate license, why pregnant? And um, we started wholesaling and flipping homes, doing Airbnb, just doing a lot of different things. And what quickly came to fruition is that here we are so busy in the construction side. And now we just layer on a bunch of other active stuff. Yeah. Right. So we've come to a point where she needs someone at a RIA. And I was in New Jersey at that time, now in Tennessee. And she met someone who was doing out-of-state rentals. And they were just buying single family houses, fixing them up. And we were like, that sounds like an interesting idea, right? We'd always been big in building teams where we're doing the restaurants and the bars. And we went and started buying duplexes, triplexes, and some quads that were completely distressed, got renovations in there, had a property manager, and lo and behold, having everything done without us after doing it, and then check starts showing in the mail, that was that aha moment. Yeah. We were just like, oh, that makes sense, but that's not going to be scalable, right? Having like 50 duplexes all around everywhere. You're still all around everywhere, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was going to be a logistical nightmare. 
So we kept asking that question, what else is there, right? And that's so usually it's one of the most important things I say is that if I'm not there, what else is there? And I came up on a podcast just like this, just talking about large multifamily. And I was like, that's it, right? That's it because it gives you all those different pieces and gives you all that economies of scale built into one building, right? And so we could look at that and use our model to go. Kind of equated when we had 12-unit restaurant and I had one that could seat 100 people, right? Dinner's the same time. You still had your fixed cost, right? So it's like if you had a 12-unit and you're trying to put a leasing person and a maintenance person, you can't afford them. But in a 100-unit building, you start treating it more like a business. So everything just started to make sense. And we sold off all the twos and threes went all in just to surrounding ourselves, people like this, that were just talking about multifamily, learn as much as we could. And got from there, it was about 2016, we started that. 2017, the middle of 2017, we brought a 94 unit in Louisville, Kentucky. And that was the first of, I think we were like 23 or 24 transactions since of buying multifamily in about five to six markets throughout, which has been great. So we really love the space. Can't see us going the other direction. Just so many different ways for us to win, our team to win, investors to win. So that's where we've gone so far. So on that first deal, how did you find it and how did you raise the money for it? Sure. So we had a couple great, great, great suggestions. And we just kept listening to what people were doing to see what was going to work for us. One was start building your investor network while we had to find the deal, right? And so we were out there. Basically, we came to a conclusion that we got very certain of what we wanted. So we wanted 75 to 150 units, BC assets built between 1975 and 2000 in certain submarkets in Louisville. Right. So we were very dialed in. So we knew exactly what we wanted. And I was able to take that and model out what returns would be. And I made a simple one-page sheet. It probably looks like it was in crayon if I went back and found it again. And just started going out to my friends and family and just telling them what we were going to do. Because usually, even if you find a great deal in the beginning, the hard point is people have to get over the hurdle of you now doing something odd or different from what they know you as. Right. So here I am. Jason has got breweries, he got bars, work construction. All of a sudden now I have this, I'm buying this apartment building, right? That's a question within itself for you and as an investor. Then you have to explain to them why multifamily, like why the space, like why should we fit? But you also have the track record of success that doesn't hurt, right? So you're like, I've done all these things, but I've always been successful. But here's the new trajectory that we're going for. Using this as a story. So love that you've built a story around why you're moving into this new direction, right? Absolutely. And then you just started sharing it with everybody. Yeah. And it's so important what you said, because people will say, well, I've never done this before, how I can raise money, but it's all how you showed up before. If you've said something and you do what you say, like that stands on its own to get you out of the gate. Yeah. So we would go in there and we would show them what we wanted. We would show them what we're going to do, give them time to dissect and just understand it there and then get soft commitments from them. Like we would just say, hey, listen, like, is this something you'd be interested in when we find this deal? And you're like, how much? Like 25 or 50,000. And so, you know, we ran out and had somewhere like over a million dollars of people that were like interested. So we're like, okay, cool. The whole time we're going out there looking at properties and we were just going through brokers, same traditional routes. And then, but we started asking property managers that we were going to work with, insurance agents, and really just telling everybody what we're going to do. Yeah. And usually that's the piece. Just tell everybody because you never know. No one walks around with a sign of how much money they have in their bank account and they're wanting to place, right? So you got to have these conversations because there's millionaires next to you all the time that you don't know. They could have been working at Intel for 20 years and now they've just retired and hell, they got a million dollars and just sitting there in their old 401k. They got to do something with. I've met these types of people and they're out there everywhere and they look very ordinary. Yeah. 
thousand percent, right? That's the same thing. Most people that have money don't look like they got money, by the way, right? Yeah. And that's why we don't want to filter out who we're going to speak to. Just because if you're excited about it, just go talk to people. You'll never be surprised. And even if they don't have the money, I guarantee if you're like, hey, listen, that's cool. Now's not the right time. No problem. Do you know anybody else yeah. who this might be right for? Everybody wants to help. Bingo. The referral. Yeah, I totally agree. I love that the fact, my belief is, well, and this is where I started. I started with friends and family. I think that was, people sometimes are like, oh gosh, well, my friends or family are all broke. Well, but maybe they know people that they're not. And like, that's usually the case. It's not always the friends and family that are going to give you their money, but they're going to lead you to people that can. And then starts the journey. Like you said, you started throwing out seed Jason, before you even had a deal. Correct. And you know what's great about friends and family? Like, even if they don't have the funds, they're going to be the softest on you and the most critical at the same time when you go speak yes. to them, right? And so you get both sides of it. So you get the roughest of the advance because they know all sides of you, but in the same part, they're a softball approach because it's an easier conversation because you already have a warm commitment. But it also helps you get identified questions that potentially could come up in a future oh, conversation. So when you go out to that next conversation, you're not trying it out because you've already had a number of ones with people who know you. And I always say, who's the best to practice on, right? Because really, a lot of this is repetition. It's about wordsmithing too, right? Understanding how to overcome objections and not be going, uh, 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 to be confident, right? Confident comes with practice. Again, probably back to your 100 miler, right? You don't get good unless you keep doing it. You're repetitive. You go every time, right? You get cadence, and that's some of the difficulty when someone says, I'll just wait to find a deal, then I'll go raise the money, right? Because you're put at a disservice because at that time, you have to ask and you need the money, right? There's a lot more pressure on you because you haven't been able to build that up. So the more you get ahead you're of it- You're more likely to fail that way. I've seen a lot of new people totally shoot themselves in the foot by not going and starting their capital raise portion of it early. You got to do it way early and you really do have to do, everybody's got to know what you're doing, right? Correct. And then you've got to follow up like crazy. Yeah, time goes so quick, right? When you get a deal on there, depending on the time and market, like- you have a lot of moving pieces, right? And if you're doing a lot of this for yourself between the due diligence, putting together the team, thank, raising money, like there's all these things happening at once. You lit a big firecracker, right? That thing's, once you put one under contract, it's like lighting the firework. It's going to go off, right? Yeah, that's a great way to put it. But everything's moving in that same path so quick. So the more things you can control, right? Because there's a lot of things you can control, right? The lender's going to take their time and all of a sudden every four or six or nine days be like, we need this right now, right? And they're just going to do that to you for out. You have to jump, right? So the more things you can be ahead of, like that you can have prepared when you get into the deal, that puts you in the driver's seat. You don't want to be behind running like crazy trying to figure out all these different things you're missing and what you missed and what's dropped while the deal is trying to get closed. And where are you guys at today? So this was, you started 2017. We're now at 2022. What have you accomplished? Like assets under management? Can you give us a little insight of what you've done? Sure. Overall acquired about 24, 2,500 units. We've sold 12 of those projects. So we've gotten full cycle on 12 of them. So the remaining were somewhere over the thousand mark. Now that we're down here in Tennessee, I come from a lot of construction experience. We've been pushing into about 10% on development. So we have a 236 unit and 11 unit and a 72 unit here, right in our backyard here. that are going through various stages of development for either multifamily or townhomes. Yeah. So there's been a lot going on, but focus still is multifamily. There's just so much energy there, regardless what we see with rates and other points. 
yeah. Let's talk about the full cycle of a deal too, and how does that feel, right? Because you don't necessarily now. You probably came in at you came in at a really nice time. 2017 was a great time, and if you went some full yep. cycles on something, that was a great five six years. I mean, pushed the envelopes and probably had some pretty good exits, right? Probably better than expected yep. exits too, just with capital compressions. Exactly. That's one of the things about these deals is that we can go what's going to be the whole period, a five or seven year whole period. But for investors to understand is that we want to get them the best return in the best timeline that that we can filter, right? And we also want to make a good decision to seek the best return at the best stage, right? And so a lot of these were able to capitalize early, right? A lot of these anywhere between 12 months and 40, 42 months on deals because of the inherent improvement. And a lot of this is that we were able to get ahead on business plan or the market also assisted or the market really carrying on those points, all those in between here. So if the question comes like, why'd you decide to sell? It's that we've exceeded the expectations on where our returns sit and burning the hand is better than two in the bush. No one said that taking a little bit of profit off the table is a bad thing. I've never heard anyone ever say that. Oh my God, you left Correct. money on the table. No, they'll be like, good job. Right? Correct. And my belief on that too is we had a couple that we exited early. That was a five year plan. We exited it in three. And it's like when you hit your business plan, truly, or even if it's early, there's not a whole lot of more value left in the deal. And I always say, why do you sell a property? I think we're in the cash flow game, right? That's my goal. And usually you can buy more cash flow by going into another deal, another opportunity. Yeah. And that's that's a great question. Yeah. The one we sold just over 12 months, we had turned like 96% of the units, right? And so now we're so equity heavy based on just the improvement and just the valuation. And we're sitting here, just the cash flow is going to only be able to continue to increase based on our yearly or monthly adjustments here. So you look at it and say, I know we were intending to hold this for five or six years, but at this point, I'm holding back the potential or even be able to recycle that money based on just where we've been able to get in the business. True. I always tell people this too, like when you do the math behind it too, sometimes you're like, hey, if I exit, I'll make $3 million or I can take, if I don't exit, I'm making $100,000 for the next four years in a row, right? So I'm like a 400K, I'm like, ugh. Or I make $3 million right now. You're like, wait, let me take that $3 million, invest in my own deal. Maybe I still take some other people in as partners, but now I've got a big chunk where I'm the investor in my own deal. So not only is my money working, I'm still getting the GP. And then that is the compounding. I think that's what everybody really strives to do sometimes is like, well, I want to be the only investor in my deal and the only GP. Well, I think that's how you do it, right? You start looking at stuff like that, sell when it makes the most opportunity, invest in your own deals, double that money as a return as well. And then those things start to come and reward you where you can start really going in on some of your own deals if that's what you choose. Exactly. And that's really a great point here is that partnerships serve a great purpose, right? They help you whether it's starting out or whether it's building or wherever you're scaling up, but at the same part, more you can go back to capitalizing, getting back to controlling the narrative in your project. That's so important. a key role, right? And so we were lucky enough, we were able to do as GPs, my wife and I, the first one ourselves, but we've now gone and done a lot on partnerships because I found that at first, before we started growing our internal team here, is that the limitations was based on me, right? Because just like I said, all the hats, you know, asset management, due diligence, capital raising, lead generation, lender relationship, you know, third-party relationship, all those different things were on me, right? And so there's only one me, one mouth. There's only one thing I'm doing at one time. Then you're one guy on the hamster wheel running around, right? Correct. And so that 
becomes, as you continue to grow and buy more projects, becomes your limitation. And so you can defeat that by going out there and finding other partners who are strong in different things that you could take off your plate or bringing people in-house, right? And depending on the model, they both serve the role. They both serve a role. I've done both, right? When I first started, I had partners. I realized that what I wanted to create was a company. And so when we started making more income, we're like, okay, we can afford another team member, someone that we pay a salary, someone that gets it. As you start to build that, now almost everybody that we have is on salary, part of our team, right? Yeah, and that's huge, right? Because you think about that. Usually the, the thing is, well, how can I afford that person? And it's not so much the affording today. And usually we break it out, like say the person's, I don't know, 50,000, 75,000, 100,000. We think of it on that point, right? right? But you break that down and say, I don't know, 60,000 for easy math, that's 5,000 a month, right? So right now they have to give you $5,000 of your time back or $5,000 of value, right? And if they can accomplish any of those roles, it puts you in a better position to go back out there and succeed in the market because you were doing a role that was limiting you and limiting your growth. Amen, right? And it doesn't take a big team. Like, How big is your team now? So we have five with the sixth one starting at the new year. Are you ready for retirement? The majority of Americans are not. Failing social security and dated financial planning practices put strains on many retirees' finances. 46% of Americans admit they are not taking steps to prepare for the likelihood they outlive their retirement savings. Luckily, it's not too late. Diversify your portfolio. At Kahuna Investments, we partner with passive investors to create award-winning communities families love to call home. To learn more about our company and our process, go to www.kahunainvestments.com and click the deal room. I have a team of five as well. So we have like about $250 million in assets. So like we manage that pretty damn well. I mean, like we're looking to add two more players. We're actually looking at adding a couple of financial advisors that will go out and full-time raise capital for us. But when I say that, they're working as salary employees that get quarterly bonuses. Just disclaimer right? They're not paid on how much they raise, but they are a profit sharing, right? But the whole thought behind that is it doesn't take a whole large team in the multifamily space to get all the pieces, right? And once you do that, then you really can elevate yourself to the CEO and your team will, I mean, if you build it right, will work and it'll work beautifully. Yeah. We are the overlap. It's how soon we can realize that we're usually the bottleneck. And that's always been my point of attention is I'm the bottleneck, right? And I've been too stubborn. You know, I am a come from an Italian family. I'm too stubborn to realize it earlier. And so I keep trying to be cognizant of it because I'm the bottleneck, right? At every point, if something's not growing, it's me. It's not anything to do with my team. It's either I haven't trained them well, I'm too busy doing something else, or I just haven't brought someone on that could they could help me there. Yeah. And listen, to grow your team, SOPs, right? I mean, talk about that a little bit right? What have you guys put in place to help your team members grow and thrive? So the goal here is when you bring on team members, that if your intention is continue to grow, is that you want to try and choose practice that they can follow, right? They can go in there because if you are stuck at every point handholding them because they don't have a process in place, then on that front, you are getting the bottleneck because you're taking yourself away. And the same part, as you continue to grow, that person themselves may grow into maybe a managerial position or something else. So you want something detailed because when that next person comes in, you don't want to lose one, three, six months of someone's time while they're handholding them as well. So the more you can have checks and balances where someone can fall back on and the guidelines that you want to grow into, which it takes, it's not easy, right? Because that takes a lot of your commitment to do it. But I've heard many countless stories where people hire someone like, I just spent four months training them and then got ill or or just went and took another job. And now I have to do it all over again. And it's overwhelming because they didn't write anything down. Yeah. 
right? But if they had recorded the process, then the next person can come and fill that role and then have questions at least about what you've built out here, yeah. right? And people always say, well, I don't know the role. And the other way is that you hire good people and you help have them help you craft it. Yeah. Once you have a team, you're like, hold on, what are you doing right now? Is there a spot for that? SLP on that? No, create one, yep. right? And here's your format 100%. for creating the SOP, right? 100%, because the same thing, if I find good talent, I also don't want to say, do it exactly like this, because I'm also going to, I'm, I'm going to stop yes. them from having their best potential. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny, because you said your own restaurants well, right? Yeah. Not anymore, but I did in the past when I moved out of New York City. But you back in the past, right? So... I believe that restaurants do this the best, right? I used to be a restaurant manager for a steakhouse and they had a process for every position, right? You go back, you know, back house, it's like the prep guy. He's got a whole manual that he can go through and explains exactly the master recipes to the salad guy. Everything's precise, right? To the server, how they do it. And so they have a manual for everything that one person does. And I always thought like that was where I kind of got my inspiration of everybody should have kind of a manual of here's my spot. Here's kind of what it is. And here's the things that I'm going to do. And you can go through it. And when it's set up that way, you can really replicate yourself fairly quickly, right? Or better than you think. In fact, I was thinking of one of the first restaurants and bar jobs I had, I worked at Fridays, right? And they have the built out process. Thing. I worked at a ton of just small mom and pop things, all kinds of things. But back in Pennsylvania, when I was in, I worked at Fridays and they have their build out is amazing. But what you get is like, if it makes sense, if you want to grow and scale, you want uniformity across yeah. your company, right? So if everybody's on the same page of what they're doing, then it doesn't matter if one person comes into the ecosystem, whether it's through this person or the other person, the experience is going to be the yeah. same. And lots of that with restaurants too, is that if they're a chain or other points, there's many restaurants, they don't want, unless it's, that's the absolute desire, typically they want the same approach, what expectations will be if you walk into one or the other, right? And that's everything from just how things look, how things dress, the type of menus, the type of food, the type of feel, right? And that's how you can look at business too, right? Culture. Yep. Even their culture, right? So what they're really trying to do is their culture, right? So I think what I really believe in is when I was in the restaurant business with the steakhouse, we're like, we're Charleston. They're like, our competitor was Outback, right? So it's like maybe Fridays, but we wouldn't consider Friday. Fridays a little down the road. But we'd like, Outback would be our competitor. We're like, dude, screw Outback, right? Outback, if you ever go to Outback, just by the way, if you go and order, you'll have a table of 10, we'll say, right? They're going to come and they're going to sell off the food. No one's going to know who's got what, right? So it's going to be like, the servers will be like, who had the... Whatever. Now, at Charleston's, we did what's called positions, right? So every table you go to, there's position one, two, three, four. And so you're ordering by position. And when it comes out of the restaurant, right, they're like, hey, this is seat one, two, three, four. And so you already know where the food goes. And we're like, that little thing right there was like, no, no, no. It's like everybody's chests went out and expanded. We're like, we're Charleston's. We're not freaking out back. And I think yeah, I love that's it. the culture piece. I can see that your company has that as well. It's the little thing that's the little extra that makes that sauce so much better. Yeah, and it's funny you say that. You think of something that just can make the experience so much better. Instead of just people out there holding plates out there, you just come down and just put your food down, right? They know what you order. Like just simple things like that, that someone made the choice or they just haven't thought to just decided that we're just going to go out there and just call people's name out or just call food out and just hopefully someone's going to put their hand yeah. up, right? And the logistical point of just going there and having a simple thing is just allocating the positions there is that you can set up every meal just to come out as determined, put it right down in front of them without this confusion that goes on there as yeah. well. I much like, I love how 
food and that represents multifamily because there's so many things that go on in a restaurant. There are multiple different pieces in different departments. I think a lot of it, we have acquisitions. You know, we're trying to find deals, getting broker relationships. And you're spending another plate. It's like, we got to go find money. All those people that we could do. And really, I think as our job as CEOs are aspiring to that, your job is to be the master puppet holder, right? Or the commander in chief, really. I mean, you're just trying to say, here's what we need to do. Here's what we give people good directions and clear directions. When you do that, your team thrives. Yeah, 100%. And restaurants do speak so funny, right? Because it's always such a changing environment. You meet so many different people. It's a great space that if you come from the restaurant, you just get in front of so many different people, right? And so it's always good to just have so many different conversations. And sometimes when you come to anything, like the more you can be exposed to just so many different talk tracks, so many different people, so many different experiences, the more prepared you are on any capacity to go out there and talk to new people, right? Because sometimes we think to talk to everybody as if it's us, right? So everybody's the same person as me as when I talk here, but for this, just understanding how you can talk to other people, the restaurants are huge for that. What do you think is your favorite piece of the journey so far in the multifamily space? Oh, I've made a lot of friends, right? That's been cool, right? You make a lot of friends, a lot of people that you connect with, whether it just be like, you know, maybe like talking for the first time here, like that kind of friendship or just investors who have just, we've come into our network and we've become friends. Like that's been really interesting, right? When you're doing your own thing, right? Like say you go and work at office supplies for 25 years, you're only exposed to so many different yeah. people. Well, here meet so many different people, so many different injuries, so many different expectations of what they can do, right? And that was part of the reason even starting our mastermind is that sometimes people are just one step from doing what they want and it, they just need that one quick thing. And when you see people get out there and do it and just say, I'm going to do this and it, it clicks and they get it done, like that's huge. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to see the reward and just how beneficial it can be because if you were to say, hey, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 years ago, I'm a bartender, right? And I'd be doing what I was doing today. Like, it would be like, what? Right? So the transition- Pitch yourself, right? Yeah. It's all possible. So if you set your mind to it and can set yourself some clear steps and just start knocking them down, anybody who's interested in doing this space can get in there. Everybody's qualified. Yeah, I agree too. But most of the time, it's us getting past our minds, right? That's the biggest piece. Like, I can't get past my mind. There's nothing out there holding you back. It's you just keeping yourself back. Yeah, I truly, truly agree. Now, what would you say your favorite thing to do in the multifamily? What are you best at? What's Jason best at? So asset management and underwriting. They have pretty good, strong background in finance where that's what I went to college for. So like, I love numbers. They come to me easily, right? And so, but on that front, there are two roles here where... Again, like I could do underwriting and asset management, but if I don't have leads and money, then I did. I got nothing to do. So that same part is those are my strong points. Where if I said that this is where I want to desire, I like the project side. I like those other points, but I brought in people onto the team to help in those capacities here because I can't get myself bogged down in all those different points. I do it the weekly meetings we have for property management. Every property I attend those, but the in betweens, right? If something needs to happen on the ground or the part. The team is now in place that they can handle those. Even the initial underwriting will go through the team before it comes to me. So I'm not in their initial plugins that take the majority of the time because that, again, is me being my own limitation. But in that same front, the leads and the money are most important, right? We have an acquisition person and money. We actually have someone, my brother, who is going to come out and work for us in the new year, right? He's going to focus on the capital side. But on that same front, that's where your energy needs to go. Because if you 
can control one of them, you're in a good spot. If you have leads, great. You can go out there and find someone who can be partners on the money. If you have money, same thing, you can find someone who can be partners on the lead. But if you can handle and have the capacity to take on both, then you control the experience. Amen. You can control the GP. You can control who gets to come into your deal. Maybe there's some partners, co-sponsors that come in with you as well. But at the end of the day, you're controlling the whole entire project. That's the only way that I recommend to do it because it's way much funner to be the puppet master than it is to be on the one part. Where, and listen, don't get me wrong. Any part, whatever it takes to get in your first deal, I'm going to say that's generally what you should do. You need experience. Correct firmly know where you want to go and start working towards that goal daily. I think that's a really good. So what would you not do again? Has there been a mistake that you say, oh gosh, we won't be doing that thing again? Uh, So two things is that I had to plan down in the beginning. So we did the first one, then we waited about a year to do the second one, right? So hindsight's 2022 and the deals we could have gotten again, if we were just more, I guess, aggressive at that time, it would have reaped rewards, right? So that was fine. We made sure the process was in place and was hard line. The next thing is definitely on hiring, right? I waited too long to hire people, right? I again became my bottleneck. And we've been very specific with our management companies and most experience have been very good. A couple have not been ideal. And you wait that extra month when, you, when things don't get better. In most things in life, right? You can set the stage and if things aren't what you want, most of the time, it's either that there's a misunderstanding, which might be coming from you. They're not having the capacity to fill your needs. And so when that time comes, move. That's the thing. There's no waiting around. It's like hoping that you have this relationship when you're growing up. All management companies suck. We'll just get that out of the way. That's our small disclaimer. <laughs> have you ever thought about... They are tough. They are not easy. We've actually, the smaller properties, we now manage in-house. Yeah, so say, have you thought about going into and be vertically integrated, right? Yeah, so right now we have three that we manage in-house. And not for nothing, collections do tremendously well. Leasing, right? We're having one project. The company kept giving me nine different reasons why leasing was going to be a beast. And we couldn't find one piece to basically support that we should have trouble leasing here. So we moved on to us and six vacancies. We turned around and they had them off the board in like three weeks. We are slowly transitioning. Uh, We probably got about a year to two year plan to bring on that in-house for us. Awesome. And it really is about control, I think. Understanding controlling the product more so than it's not a profit source for us, right? You would never get into the property management business to make more profit. Like, oh, I'm going to make money off the property management side. You can make more profit organically by doing what you said, being a more efficient operator, doing it the right way. My biggest thing that I really wanted to do where I feel like most management companies, Jason, let me know if you agree, and staffing. Staffing is our hardest thing, right? You're killed either by the leasing person or the maintenance person or a combination of both. And also, if you have an asset manager or regional manager that's coming from the management company, they may be poor too because if they're your point, right, and then you give them something of a need, well, depending on how they relay that need, if they have 12 different properties that they're overseeing right now, you may be 15th down the line and they may forget or all these other points, right? And so just time is everything in this space. And by the way, that's usually what's happening. They're loaded with about 15 properties, by the way, kids. Correct. And so you have to really, as soon as you can hire an asset manager, that's your first piece. Or you got to do it yourself. Correct. You've got to be on them to hold your dreams and wishes alive because most third-party management companies understand they're fee-based, right? So they make fees regardless of if your property does well or not. Now, if it does well, they think that you'll keep them. But if it does just average, most people are going to keep them, right? They're not going to fire them. So there's no incentive to go out and crush. Now, for us as owner operators, our only goal is to go out and crush, right? When we do that well, we effectively hit our business plan. So that's the yin and yang to it. If your plan is the third-party management, this should be a key piece 
for you to decide to make sure you have in your pocket or on your team when you're going into a market. So if you're saying what market you come into, right? If you can't find a good property manager, well, the solution is you're managing yourself or you're not going yeah. in that market, right? There's not one that's just going to magically show up. You don't want to hope for the best because you may have the perfect plan, but if they can't implement the plan, it's over not. Yeah, it really is. And so this goes back to my restaurant business years. So one of the things that they used to do in my restaurant, they had what's called MITs, managers in training. I got it. Yep. And I feel like now that I've got a big enough portfolio, there's a time where we're going to start doing this and we're just going to hire people and make each property pay a small fee to the collective to have have people that are these young college kids or whatever that want a management job and we just have a training properties and they know that they're deployable right that's the thought you hire them with like hey listen we're going to train you we're going to set you for a month with our training maintenance guy so you can understand what good maintenance should look like right we're so close we're not there yet but we are actively building it now what it's going to look like and that's going to be a piece that we're going to include is an MIT program because I feel like that's our weakest link we take over an asset most times you take over a property Jason we have all the crap staff that's there they're usually not yeah. the ones that are going to take the property to the next level right yeah the same thing and usually it's hard to keep the current management company and it's hard to keep the staff mm -hmm. Because even if the staff has the capability, well, the tenant base, since they haven't been empowered in the right way or haven't been given the right money, the tenant base already has a connotation that they're just not going to be a good person for the property. You can change the people owning the property, but they're not the face, right? Your leasing person, your maintenance person, they're the face yep. of the property, right? And so if they haven't done it, usually it's the same thing. They're not going to turn around and do it. In the management company, there can be a lot of different reasons, but very rarely, I think, very rarely, maybe one time we've kept the management company just because it was one that we'd used before and they had the property and the owner just wasn't giving them any funds, right? So they were limited. Yeah, CapEx, right? Things they needed, yeah. Correct. And so, but it's very tough to take a project not perform. That's a great analogy though, because it's true, right? It's like sometimes when you're taking over a property, you're usually fixing problems. There's some deficiencies that you're going in there to fix anyways. And so it takes the right vision. And this is really important too, is having that relationship with whoever's going to be your property manager, that they've got to see the vision the way that you see it, right? You've got to be very congruent. Because if you're not, if the management company, because I see a lot of owner operators like, we're going to do this, this, and this, and then they're telling the management company, and I see like rolled eyes, like going, oh, okay. That's so well said, because sometimes it, what happens is that if you want to be, I guess, an absentee owner, and you're not really giving the business plan of what the property manager wants to be, well, the property manager may think they're doing the right thing because you haven't really what you want. And then you get this back, like, what's happening here? And you think it's horrible. And now there's no clear communication, yeah. right? And the same front, you need to ask the property management company if your plan can actually be accomplished. If you're like, I'm going to go in here, I'm going to turn all the tenants, right? Take everybody out. We're going to do $2,000 of renovation. All of a sudden, we're going to $700 of rent a month, right? Like you may have this magical plan, but you may not realize that the property you have here is two blocks out of the good school system, or it's right in the way, the opposite way of path of progress, right? So you could have this great plan, but it may work five miles away, but it's not going to work where you are, right? And so you do want the team that's not just yesing you and being like, listen, like understand uh, your thought track, but this doesn't work. Here's what can work on this property. Yeah. Or it's going to take this much more capital to do it. You got to bring it to this level to get that. We think we are right. Yeah. You're close. Until everybody's on the same page, you're not. And whatever your property management company believes is the reality. It's not what you believe, right? Correct. 100%. Cool. Well, listen, as we get ready to wrap up, man, I really enjoyed this conversation. We went yeah, through some really good content, I think, just overall how this thing works, right? And I love our analogies. Any books that you've been reading lately that you would like to share that you really feel like has turned the dial for you a little bit? 
it's all like this Stoic like meditation. It was like how to think like a Roman emperor. That's been pretty interesting. So just a lot of the thought track on that is that there's many takeaways, but like one time is that like we overreact, right? We always overreact based on the worst case scenario when the worst case scenario rarely ever happens instead of just taking things yeah. as they are, right? It's like we worry about so many things in life that actually never happen. And if we could just take away our worries and focus on the moment, you think about how much you're going to accomplish. And that can speak to even multifamily. Like, oh, if I go buy that building, then all of a sudden it's going to burn down and the worst thing's going to happen. And then I'm going to go bankrupt and they're going to come take my dog. And it was like, what? Like, how did, where did that come from? We're not even anywhere even making offers or underwriting deals. Like you can't go to the worst case because that's what we're set up to do. We're set up to say the worst case scenario is going to happen. But if you give credit to the worst case, then in life, you have to get credit to the yes. best case. Best case, you go there, you buy this property, you do help so many people, right? You make it a better place to live. You help all your investors. They make fabulous returns. It's a set of your new life, right? There's got to be two sides of the story. We can't always just say the yeah, worst and case. And it's the one that you focus on the most. It happens, right? Yeah, right? 100%. Any advice? So I always like to say there's like usually two groups of type of people that will really three, but your new investors and some of our mid-sized tiered operators out there, what advice would you like to give them? Or if there's a piece of advice for each different group, right? Would love to hear some, sure. some final thoughts on that. I would say my limitation is always based on me not knowing a good question to get a good answer, right? So typically if I'm getting a bad answer or the answer I don't think is right, it's because I don't know a question that's the right question to get where I want to go. And lots of that comes from the action of doing. So if you want to go out and buy multiple, get yourself experienced by surrounding yourself, listen to podcasts like this and just learning about the space, but then you have to go hear a step and take a step because that's going to lead you to the next questions you need to take the next step. And if we can get back from having to try and worry about, I need to have the perfect plan, right? Like, oh, I need to have the perfect plan, have business cards, have a website, do all these other things in this part. Sometimes you need to take a step because that step's going to tell you that you're actually going completely the wrong direction. But like, okay, now I just need to turn around. Right. Right. And that's usually most of everything you need to do in this space. Take a step. You're not going to fall off the cliff. You're not going to fall off, but it will expose you to where you want to go and whether you're at least on the right direction or not. That is a great one. Love it. Take a step and then let the cards fly and see where you're at, right? Take it all in. It's it. It's like you stub your toe. You're like, okay, that wasn't right. So don't go yeah. that way again, right? And that's like anything, even in real estate, you're like, I don't know what space to go in. I don't know what to tell you. Go try one, right? Better to fig try something and be like, I don't like that. And at least be like, okay, I'm not going to flip a house anymore. I'll go do the next thing and yeah. figure that out, right? Well, that was part of us is that people say, well, could you have jumped all you did and gone to multifamily? I, probably, I guess. But in the same front, all those added value, right? Every experience we did with all the different projects in real estate added value to where right. I am today. I can't factor in all the pieces, but there's a lot that built us to work. Yeah, my only regret is I didn't go harder in 2011, right? So I was like, dude, I just wish yeah. I would have pushed myself a little bit more, bought some more properties back then. Yeah. I mean, oh my gosh. Yeah. So listen, it. how do people get a hold of you and find you? Sure. So appreciate you having me on. You can find me at yerusiholdings.com. That's our website or Jason at yerusiholdings.com, Y-A-R-U-S-I holdings.com. Find everything we've been doing. A lot of what we talked about today, our current offerings and about our mastermind as well. Right. Awesome. Well, go check him out. And Jason, I want to thank you so much for coming on this podcast. And really just, we just had a great conversation. I really enjoyed it, by the way. And one of the things you said earlier is like, you talked about mindset, right? A lot today. And I think that is congruent with what I believe and ultimately success happens, the first place it ever shows up and manifests itself is in between these two ears, right? It comes with idea, a thought. I want to be different. I want to challenge myself. I want to do that 100 mile marathon. But what's the first step? Let me just get to that little spot. 
I love that analogy of, because that really is the journey of real estate. It's like, don't look at always the end of the goal, right? Just focus on your next little piece that you gotta do. Winning is a habit of small, successful steps. You just keep taking, sometimes like you said, Jason, you gotta take a step to realize, hey, maybe this is not the right spot. I gotta pivot a little bit. Take another little step, get into it. But guys, when you do that thing and you turn on that mind and you activate it, because most of us, I promise you, you are not using it right. Not only do you gotta tell yourself and believe it, you've gotta feed that thought daily. Daily affirmations, guys, is how you get it done. And at the end of the day, it always is like how we end every podcast, is if you believe it, you can achieve it, and your paradise is possible.